Chapter Twenty Nine of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Two Family Events. A solemn thing it is to me to look upon the babe that sleeps, wearing in its spirit deeps the undeveloped mystery of our Adam's taint and woe, which when they developed be will not let it slumber so. Mrs. Browning. One morning, as the Rath family were sitting at breakfast, Ardrine noticed that Michael seemed very much absorbed by a letter he was reading. He laid it down presently, but made no remark, only he seemed a little grave and absent during the remainder of the meal. Just as they were rising from table, she heard him ask her father in rather a low tone if he would come into the study for a moment, as he wanted a few words with him, and as they went out together he mentioned the word dog-cart. Could he have it in time to catch the 11.15 train? Audrey felt a sudden quickening of curiosity. Michael's manner was so peculiar that she was sure something must have happened. She wondered what this sudden summons to town meant. It was a bitterly cold day, and a light fall of snow had whitened the ground. A three miles drive in a dog cart was not a very agreeable proceeding, only Michael seemed so strangely callous to weather now. Surely her father would insist on his having a fly from the town. He was always so careful of Michael's comfort. Audrey could settle to nothing. It was impossible to practice or answer nonce until she had had a word with Michael. So she took up the paper and pretended to read it, until the study door opened and she heard her cousin go up to his room. The next moment Dr. Ross walked in, looking as though he were very much pleased. Mike's a droll fellow, he said, addressing his wife, who was looking over the tradesman's books. He has just told me, with a very long face, that his uncle, Mr. Carlyle, is dead, and that he has left him all his money and he is as lugubrious over it as though he had been made bankrupt. Audrey uttered an exclamation, but Mrs. Ross said in her quiet way, Perhaps he is grieved at the loss of his uncle, John. It would hardly be becoming to rejoice openly at the death of a relative, however rich he might be. I am afraid many men would if they were in Mike's shoes. Why, they say Mr. Carlyle was worth six or seven thousand a year, most of its solid capital, and locked up in safe securities and investments. He was always a canny Scotsman, and liked to take care of his money. And here is Mike pretending not to care a jot about it, and looking as though he had the cares of all the world on his shoulders. I think he shows very good feeling. Michael was never mercenary, and the loss of his only near relative will make him dull for a time. My dear Emmy, that is a very pretty sentiment, but ultimately it does not hold good in this case. Mike has never seen his uncle since he was a lad of eighteen, that is about seventeen years ago, and he has often owned to me that Mr. Carlyle was very close in his money dealings. It is a pity there is no sympathy between us, he said once. Uncle Andrew does not seem to have a thought beyond his money-grubbing. He is a decent sort of fellow, I believe, and I dare say he will end by marrying some pretty girl or other, and then he will be properly miserable all the rest of his life. That does not sound much like an affectionate nephew. Oh, I never cared for him, interposed Audrey. Michael and I have often talked about him. It seems so strange that he should leave him his money when he took so little notice of him all these years. Well, he was not a demonstrative man, returned her father. But in his way he seemed both fond and proud of Mike. I remember when he got the Victoria Cross and was lying between life and death, poor lad, that Mr. Carlyle wrote very kindly and enclosed a cheque for two hundred pounds. I had to answer the letter for him, and I remember when he got better and first came down here, that I recommended him to keep up a friendly intercourse with his uncle, though I do not believe he took my advice. 
Mike was always such a lazy beggar. And he has to go up to town to see his lawyer, I suppose. Yes, and he thinks he may be away a week or two, but there I must not stand here talking. I have told Reynolds to order a fly from the town, but he need not start for three quarters of an hour. Audrey waited impatiently for another twenty minutes before Michael made his appearance. He looked very cold, and at once proceeded to wheel an easy chair in front of the fire. I may as well get warm, he observed. I expect we shall have a regular snowstorm before night. Look at that leaden sky. Well, what now? For Audrey was kneeling on the rug, and she was looking at him with her brightest and most bewitching smile. Michael, I am so glad, so very, very glad. I think I am as pleased as though your fortune were mine. Do you think that is a decent remark to make to a fellow who has just lost his uncle? Really, Audrey, you may well look ashamed of yourself. I quite blush for you. Avarice, thy name is woman. Now, Michael, don't be absurd. I am not a bit ashamed of myself. Of course I am sorry the poor man is dead, but as I never saw him, I cannot be excessively grieved. But I am delighted that he has done the right thing and left you all his money, and I am sure in your heart that you are glad too. It does not strike you that I may regard it in the light of an unmitigated bore. What does an old bachelor like myself want with this heap of money? I should like to know how I am to spend six or seven thousand a year. Why, the very idea is oppressive. You are very good at pretense, Michael, as though I am not clever enough to see through that flimsy attempt at philosophy. You think it would be infra-dig to look too delighted. Oh, you think I am going in for a stoic, he returned blandly. Yes, but you are not really one. You are never cut out for a poor man, Michael. The role did not suit you at all. It is a pain and a grief to you to travel second class, and it is only the best of everything that is good enough for you. And you like to put up at first-class hotels, and to have all the waiters and railway officials crowding round you. Even when we were in Scotland, the gilly took you for some titled aristocrat. You were so lavish with your money. It is a way you have, Michael, to open your purse for everyone. No wonder the poor widow living down by the fir plantation called you the noble English gentleman. Why, what nonsense you talk, he replied. But all the same, it pleased him to think that she had remembered these things. Oh, those happy days, that would never come back. And now you'll be able to gratify all your tastes. You have always been so fond of old oak, and you can have a beautiful house and furnish it just as you like, and you can buy pictures and old china and books. Why, you can have quite a famous library, and if you want our assistance, Gage and I will be proud to help you, and if you will only consult us, it will be the loveliest house you ever saw. What do I want with a house? he returned a little morosely. I should think rooms would be far better for a bachelor. Ah, but you need not be a bachelor any longer, she replied gaily. You have always told us that you could not afford to marry, but now you can have the house and wife too. But here she stopped for a moment, for some other words sounded oddly as she said them. Michael's wife? What a curious idea, and would she be quite willing for Michael to marry? His wife must be very nice, nicer than most girls, she said to herself, and here she looked at him a little wistfully. But Michael did not make any response. He had the poker in his hand, and when she left off speaking, he broke up a huge coal into a dozen glowing splinters. And then, do you remember, she went on, how I used to long for a male phaeton and a pair of bay horses? When my ship comes, I will drive a pair. How often you have said that to me. Will you drive me in the park sometimes, Michael, until you have someone else whom you want to take? For, of course, when you have a wife... But here he interrupted her with marked impatience. I shall never have a wife. 
I wish you would not talk such nonsense, Audrey. And there was such bitterness in his tone that she looked quite frightened. But the next moment he spoke more gently. Do you not see, dear, that I am a little upset about all this money coming to me? It is a great responsibility as well as a pleasure. Then, as she looked a little downcast at his rebuke, he put his hand lightly upon her brown hair and turned her face towards him. Why, there are tears in your eyes, you foolish child, he said quickly. Do you really mind what I said, my dear Audrey, in a more agitated tone, for to his surprise a large bright tear fell on his other hand. Oh, it was not that, she returned in rather a choked voice. Please don't look so concerned, Michael. You know I never mind your scolding me. Then what is it? he asked anxiously. What can have troubled you? Was it my want of sympathy with your little plans? The old oak and the carvings and the books, and even the male phaeton may come by and by, when I have had time to realise my position as Croesus. Did my apathy vex you, Audrey? No, for of course I understood you, and I liked you all the better for not caring about things just now. It was only... You'll think me very foolish, Michael. And here she did look ashamed of herself. But I felt, somehow, as though all this money would separate us. You will not go on living at Woodcott, and you will have a home of your own, and other interests, and perhaps, don't be vexed, but if ever you do marry, I hope, I hope, your wife will be good to me. I think I can promise you that, he returned quietly. Thank you, dear, for telling me the truth. Yes, but, Michael, are you not shocked at my selfishness? Not in the least. I understand you far better than you understand yourself. And here he looked at her rather strangely as he rose. Must you go now? Yes, it is quite time. I can hear wheels coming up the terrace. And then he took her hands, and his old smile was on his face. Don't have any more mistaken fancies, Audrey. All the gold of the Indies would not separate us. If I furnish my house, I will promise you that Gage and you shall ransack Wardour Street with me, and when you are married, my dear, you shall choose what I shall give you. And as he said this, he stooped over her, for she was still kneeling before the fire, and kissed her very gently, just above her eyes. It was done so quietly, almost solemnly, that she was not even startled. I don't suppose Blake would object to that from Cousin Michael, he said gravely. Goodbye for a few days. And then he was gone. I'm so glad he did that, thought Audrey. He has never done it before, as though Cyril would mind. I was so afraid I had really vexed him with all my foolish talking. But he looked so sad, so unlike himself, that I wanted to rouse him. I will not tease him any more about a possible wife. It seems to hurt him somehow. And yet why should he be different from other men? If he does not go on living here with father and mother, he will want someone to take care of him. And here she fell into a brown study, and the work she had taken up lay in her lap. After all, it was she who was leaving him, and she was Cyril's wife. How could she look after Michael? Audrey could think of nothing else for the remainder of the day. She told Cyril about her cousin's good fortune when he took her out for a walk that afternoon. Neither of them minded the hard roads and grey wintry sky. When a few snowflakes pelted them, they only walked on faster. Cyril showed a proper interest in the news. I'm delighted to hear it, he said heartily. Captain Burnett is one of the best fellows I know, and he deserves all he has got. And then, as it was growing dark, and they could hardly see each other's face, he coaxed her to go back with him to the grey cottage, 
to tell Kester the wonderful news. Now it so happened that Mrs. Blake and Molly had gone to a neighbor's and were not expected back for an hour, but Cyril begged her to stay and make tea for them, and a very cosy hour they spent, sitting round the fire and making all kinds of possible and impossible plans for their hero. But the next day, Audrey's thoughts were diverted into a different channel, for Geraldine's boy was born, and great was the family rejoicing. Dr. Russ himself telegraphed to Michael. Audrey never liked her brother-in-law so well as on the morning when he came down to Woodcott to receive their congratulations. Mrs. Russ was at Hillside, and only Audrey and her father were sitting at breakfast. Mr. Harcourt looked pale and fagged, but there was marvellous content in his whole mien. The slight pomposity that had always jarred on Audrey had wholly vanished, and he wrung her hand with a warmth of feeling that did him credit. Once, indeed, she could hardly forbear a smile when he said, with a touch of his old solemnity, Nurse says that he is the finest child that he has seen for a long time, and Mrs. Ross perfectly agrees with her, but she commanded herself with difficulty. I wonder if he's like you or Gage, Percival. It is impossible to say at present. One cannot get to see his eyes, and he is a little red. Mrs. Lockhart says they are all red at first, but he is astonishingly heavy. In fact, he is as fine a boy as you could see anywhere. Audrey went on with her breakfast. It was so inexpressibly droll to see Percival in the character of the proud father, but Dr. Ross seemed perfectly to understand his son-in-law. Audrey's pleasure was a little damped when she found that she must not see Geraldine. She went about with her head in the air, calling herself an aggrieved aunt, and she pretended to be jealous of her mother, who had taken up her residence at Hillside during the first week. But when the day came for Audrey to be admitted to that quiet room, and she saw Geraldine looking lovelier than ever in her weakness, with a dark downy head nestled against her arm, a great rush of tenderness filled her heart, and she felt as though she had never loved her sister so dearly. Will you take him, Aunt Audrey? And Geraldine smiled at her. No, no, do not move him. Let me see mother and son together for a moment. Oh, you two darlings, how comfortable you look. But Audrey's tone was a trifle husky, and then she gave a little laugh. Actually, boy is a week old today, and this is the first time I've been allowed to see my nephew. It did seem hard, returned Geraldine, taking her hand. But mother and nurse were such tyrants, and Percival was just as bad. We were not allowed to have a will of our own, were we, baby? It was such nonsense keeping my own sister from me, as I told them. Percival is very pleased with his boy, Gage. And then a soft, satisfied look came into the young mother's eyes. I think it is more to him than to most men, she whispered. He is not young, and he did so long for a son. Do you know, mother tells me that he nearly cried when she put baby into his arms. At least there were tears in his eyes and he could scarcely speak when he saw me first. Father loves his little boy already, she continued, addressing the unconscious infant, and after that Audrey did consent to take her nephew. What do you mean to call him, Gage? Mother and I would have liked him to be called John, after father, but Percival wishes him so much to have his own father's name, Leonard, and of course he ought to have his way. You must be my boy's godmother, Audrey. I will have no one else and Michael must be one godfather. Percival told me this morning that Mr. Bryce must be the other. I'm so glad you thought of Michael, responded Audrey rather dreamily. 
Baby had got one of her fingers grasped in his tiny fists and was holding it tightly, and the nurse came forward and suggested that Mrs. Harcourt had talked enough, and though Audrey grumbled a little, she was obliged to obey. Audrey took advantage of the first fine afternoon to walk over to Braille. It was more than three miles by the road, but she was a famous walker. The lanes were still impassable on account of the thaw. February had set in with unusual mildness. The snow had melted. The little lake at Woodcott was no longer a sheet of blue ice, and Eiderdown and Snowflake were dabbling joyously with their yellow bills in the water and their soft plumes tremulous with excitement. Audrey had set out early, and Cyril had promised to meet her halfway on her return. The days were lengthening, but he was sure the dusk would overtake her long before she got home. Audrey was inclined to dispute this point. She liked to be independent and to regulate her own movements, but Cyril was not to be coerced. I shall meet you probably by the windmill, he observed quietly. If you are not inclined for my companionship, I will promise to keep on the other side of the road. And of course, after this remark, Audrey was obliged to give in, and in her heart she knew she would be glad of his company. She had not seen Mr. O'Brien for some weeks. During the winter, her visits to Vineyard Cottage were always few and far between. Michael had driven her over a few days before Christmas, but she had not been there since. She had heard that Mrs. Baxter had been ailing for some weeks, and her conscience pricked her that she had not made an effort to see her. She would have plenty of news to tell them, she thought. There was Michael's fortune and Gage's baby. Last time she had told them of her engagement, and had promised to bring Cyril with her one afternoon. She had tried to arrange this more than once, but Cyril had proposed that they should wait for the spring. Audrey enjoyed her walk, and it was still early in the afternoon when she unlatched the little gate and walked up the narrow path to the cottage. As she passed the window she could see the ruddy gleams of firelight and the broad back of Mr. O'Brien as he sat in his great elbow chair in front of the fire. Mrs. Baxter opened the door. She had a crimson handkerchief tied over her hair, and her face looked longer and paler than ever. "'Why, it is never you, Miss Ross,' she cried in a subdued crescendo. "'Whatever will Father say when he knows it's you? There's a deal happened, Miss Ross, and I am in a shake still when I think of the turn he gave me only the other night. I heard the knock and opened the door, as it might be to you, and when I saw who it was, at least. Why, Father, Father, what are you shoving me away for?' For Mr. O'Brien had come out of the parlour, and had taken his daughter rather unceremoniously by both shoulders, and had moved her out of the way. "'You leave that to me, Priscilla,' he said in rather a peculiar voice, and here his great hand grasped Audrey's. "'You have done a good deed, Miss Ross, in coming here this afternoon, for I am glad and proud to see you.' And then, in a voice he tried in vain to steady, "'Susan was right. She always was, bless her. And matters come home.' 